Open up your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. In my studies of this, I felt it appropriate to open up our reading by backing up to verse number 30 of the previous chapter and start there. We are in, uh, going to endeavor to cover verses 1 through 7 today of chapter 5, but for our reading, let us begin with chapter 4, verse 30, and I'll read straight through without any breaks. Hear the word of the Lord. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient or appropriate, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. In our last message from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 down to 32, entitled Reflections of Sanctification, we begin to consider together the teachings of the Apostle Paul with regard to the objective difference between those who profess to have experienced the gospel, the converting power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who have not, by way of evidence in the way they live their lives. That's namely the turn that this epistle took in Ephesians chapter 4. And by way of recap, we recall that Paul instructed us as the church in verses 25 through 29 that in a Christian's life and in his conduct, any form of lying, sinful anger, stealing, and or filthy speech should never be accepted or simply glossed over as something we would be indifferent about. But as we saw in verses 31 and 32, they're to be put away from us and they are to be replaced with that which is wholesome speech, long-suffering and attitudes of a tender heart and being forgiving of one another. Now, over the last several messages we have correctly observed that the inspired apostles, and I emphasize inspired apostle, this is God speaking and God giving the apostle these thoughts and these lines of reasoning and these words. We observe that the inspired apostle's line of thought and his carefully chosen words are beginning to become increasingly clear and very pointed. Much like a concerned father who is going to instruct a young adult child who is about to set out upon a task or a situation or an endeavor in life without the trusted presence of their father being next to them. That young adult child needs clear speech, pointed speech, not long philosophical lectures. Need to be told the black 
and the right objective truths of what to abstain and stay away from and what the right counsel and direction would be for them in the situation they find themselves. Now, as part of the introduction in today's text, and in fact I believe a critical aspect unto the overall flow of thought that begins to take place here, let us pause and ask this question. Why do you think that Paul would have to say these types of things that are contained in our text today to individuals who in chapter 1 are identified as being adopted children through Jesus Christ? Why such clear pointed exhortations and warnings? And furthermore, why would he have to talk to people in such a way who in chapter 1 verse 13 says have trusted the word of truth? And furthermore, the text says, are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I think that's a good and fair question. Doesn't he trust them? Doesn't he have confidence? These adopted, sealed, believing people will make the right choices or conduct and live themselves in the right way? Well, the short answer is because he understood And he taught that salvation, that is, one's eternal election by the love of God through Christ, applied in time, space, and history, that one's salvation, including these Gentile, converted Gentiles in Ephesus, was only the beginning of a guaranteed future and glorious consummated salvation that would culminate in their once and final victory over death, over the flesh, and over all encumbering sinful things that are going to affect them in this life. You see, Paul had a correct understanding of salvation that through faith, a journey is started. A work is begun. A pilgrim progress, you could say, is afoot. And with that correct understanding and nature of salvation and sanctification, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in this letter is beginning to show them that their faith is going to have to be exercised in order that it may be strengthened. He knew this well. He taught this very clearly in other letters of his to other people. I'm going to give you just three short examples. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Listen to this exercising language of their faith. He says, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove yourselves. Examine. Prove. Verbs. Exercising. Working. Strengthening. Galatians 5.16 To that church he said, This I say then, those of you that have been adopted, trusted, and sealed with the Spirit of the Holy, the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. This I say then to you, Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit. Exercise your faith. Strengthen your faith. Lastly, Philippians 2.12. Here it's very clear. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work. Exercise. Apply your faith. Not only did Paul understand the nature of salvation and sanctification, which I believe is largely why, inspired by the Spirit, he gives these warnings, he gives these strong exhortations, but also the Apostle Paul, in his short but very uh, experienced tenor as an Apostle in the service of Jesus Christ, knew something also about false converts in the church. Those, that is, who profess to have a true and a salvific relationship with Jesus have been changed by Jesus, but also never had a change in relationship with sin and the old nature. He knew all too well about that matter as well. And that's why he has this, what I call, clear speech in today's text. To say it another way, Paul was well aware of the reality that in the local gathered church there were, as the hymn we just sung, false sons within the pale. Meaning that while there was indeed the majority of these Christians in Ephesus who were seeking to kill the old ways of the old man that he's described in chapter 4 verse 20, there also were those who desperately wanted to protect the ways 
in the practices of the old man. This mature awareness of false converts, along with the keen understanding of the Christian's need to exercise their faith in continual mortification of remaining sin, is why, beloved, the inspired Paul speaks with unequivocal clarity today. And in fact, this text could, I believe, rightly and uniquely be considered, along with 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, through among the most sincere and plain talk from the apostle to any of the early Christians. The sermon title for today is Those Barred from Heaven. Barred from Heaven, or it could be titled Those Who Will Not Inherit the Kingdom of Christ. How do I suggest we approach our text today? Well, I suggest to you that our first heading would be in verses 1 and 2, where Paul, interestingly, I believe, describes an aspect of what we ought to be as selfless love. Being selfless in our love. And then verses 3 and 4, he focuses on sinful selfishness. That's really what those sins are manifestation and fruits of, I will argue. And in the verse 3, he gives those who will be barred from heaven, who are manifesting this sinful selfishness. And then in a very pastoral way, in verses 6 and 7, he warns us to not be deceived. Selfless love, sinful selfishness, barred from heaven, and, the, and be not deceived. Let's look together then and consider, first of all, this selfless love that I believe Paul is bringing into focus before he even gets into the sins that he wants to make sure the, the Christians uh, abstain from and stay away from. Look in your Bibles at verse 1. He says, Be followers of God as dear children. Dear children. And walk in love. I think it's interesting that here at this point, Paul uses these endearing words, dear children, at the beginning of this section. And he does so, I believe, to remind these Christians that they have been made new creatures in Christ, building upon what he has said in previous uh, chapters 1 through 3, and at the very end of chapter 4 then. You are new creatures. You are adopted sons and daughters, once Gentiles in darkness. Oh, you are dear children of God. You are no longer that wandering, blind, pagan Gentile. You have been brought into the manifestation of the mysteries of Christ. You are a dear child of God. In verse 30 of chapter 4, it grieves your Father. It grieves His Spirit. When you uh, would entertain such a lifestyle or practices amongst yourself as His children, who He has given His Spirit to, who He has marked His love and affection upon, you are God's dear children. Walk in love as Christ is God's only unique and holy begotten eternal Son. Paul is saying that we under Christ's headship are also God's covenant children. Of course, not in any way equal with Christ and sharing in His divine essence, but the Scriptures do repeatedly refer to us in this endearing way as being God's sons and God's daughters. Now remember, as we were learning in Sunday school class today about an attribute of God saying that God is wisdom. The Bible talks about God being light as well. This comes through in 1 John 1.5 where it says, God is light. Now, it's not referring to the, 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 you know, the, the things that are right here in front of us that enable us to see. That's talking about God is blameless. He is pure, completely pure, completely blameless. And here we're being called His children. Um, We are being related to Him in proximity of a father and a child relationship. And as He is blameless, and as He is pure, as He is light, you see what Paul, inspired by the Spirit, is trying to do in their minds. He's trying to say, as your father is blameless, as your father is pure, he is forgiving, he is tenderhearted, so be you 
Imitate your father. That's what the text says. Followers of God. Be ye therefore followers, imitators of God as dear children. Now dads, doesn't it in, um, just tickle your heart when you see one of your children trying to imitate you? And mom will look over to you, dad, and say, he, you know, is just trying to be just like you. You know, it may be something he does, a habit in his mannerisms or a phraseology that he wears. That's, that's a father-son right there, you know. And, and this is what Paul's really wanting us to see. Be like your father. You have been born of light. You have been created new. Now imitate him. This is your calling. He says to walk in love. But we have to stop and ask ourselves before we get into the prohibitions, what type of love? And I think this is important to nail down because I struggle with why is Paul talking about this before he gets into these real sober warnings? And here's why. Nowadays, love has so many different meanings. And in the most cases, it's lost really any clarity or depth of meaning when people use it. However, here when the Apostle Paul is talking about the love that he wants us to walk in, it is, like in most cases in scriptures, speaking about the love that is demonstrated to some degree or another by self-sacrifice. In other words, selflessness. Giving up one's will, giving up one's desire unto someone else's will or someone else's desire and their need. That's the kind of love that Paul is calling us to walk in as dear children of God is the type of love that will surrender my will for the sake of another's will. This comes through wonderfully clear when you hear Jesus talk about love. Listen to the words of the Savior in John 15.10. He told them, He said, If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandment, and I abide in His love. Now we see there in that context that giving up one's selfish will and desires to the will and the commands of Jesus and His teachings afford us a vital connection and experience of abiding in His love. But what is connected there is us what? doing what Jesus has asked, not doing what we want. And in so much we do, oh, we abide in His love. Just as He perfectly did what? Surrender His will as the second person in the Trinity unto the will of His Father, abided perfectly, experienced, had all of the love of the Father. Now, Jesus is not teaching the sense here that there will be punishment or condemnation when you or one of His followers uh, fails to, to follow Him. He's not saying there that if you don't follow My commandments and teachings that I'm going to withdraw My love. No, what He's saying there is if you don't recognize the idea that if you hang on to your desires, if you hang on with a, a, a vice grip to your own will and do what you want to do, you are going to be robbed of abiding in the blessings and all of the fruits and the things of my love and experiencing, possessing, walking in the things of my love. Paul, you see, in our text today is speaking of a love that we as dear children must give up what we want for the sake of Christ and others. Selfless love. We are to be followers of Christ and be selfless in our love. And now what he does, see in the text, what he does to amplify this meaning of what he means by love, he points the Christian to the most beautiful witness of love ever, ever known to human history. The giving up of Jesus Christ, of himself, as an offering and a sacrifice for ill-deserving sinners. You've got to get this nailed down in verses 1 and 2 before you even understand what he's trying to tell you in verses 3 and 4. In this text, we have wrapped up the, quote, mystery 
which was made known unto them back in chapter 1, verses 9. You know, all that doctrinal stuff we went through where the Spirit, where the God, God eternally elected them, He eternally loved them, He sovereignly rescued them by seeing His Spirit opening their eyes to what was called in chapter 1, the mystery. The mystery of what? Of this. Of God's selfless love and Christ's obedience. Selfless obedience, Nolan, to His Father's will. This is the selfless love that Paul is wanting to uh, amplify. What great mystery? The great mystery of how the ancient curse of sin which man had brought upon himself, sickness, pain, violence, all because man was deceived by the, certain, by the serpent unto covetousness within his heart, not fully content with all the life-giving innocence and freedom which man's Creator granted him. No man wanted what, that which was forbidden. And as a result of God's justice, as a result of God's holiness, man could no longer be in the presence of God who was all light and all purity. Oh, the plight of man since the fall. We see it in the chronicles of history, do we not? It offers us a sad narrative of over and over again trying to redefine ourselves, redefine our existence, wandering in and out of old and new forms of idol and self-worship. Who will save us? Who would see us even worthy of being saved? Who would give up one ounce of their own time, effort, energy, power to even save such a lot? Who who will lift the curse? Who will reunite us with our Holy Maker? We see in verse 2 who does. Christ, the blessed manifestation of all of God's wisdom and love did that selflessly. Paul points these Christians, these dear children, back to the ancient gospel narrative that's interwoven throughout all of redemptive history, foretold and promised by God the Father Himself back in Genesis 3.15, the narrative and the story which wicked man seeks to run from, he seeks to erase from our history. Nowadays, going back to our Sunday school class, wants to ban from our future understanding. Ah, but it's a narrative which will echo through all the ages and the age to come from the hallways of heaven as a song of rejoicing from the saints all the way down to the caverns of hell as a rejoiner to the fallen angels and the condemned souls who mocked this gospel, who mocked the crown of Christ and those who loved that crown of Christ. It will be a rejoiner to them, a witty reminder to them of how wrong they were. Why? Why do Christians love Christ? Why do we love Him? We see that it is only by His sovereign, effectual love He ever cared for us. Nothing good enough of us. Certainly we don't love Him because in the marketplace of deities, He's the one that allows us to gleefully live our lives any way we want. Certainly it's not because He promises us who follow Him an easy, self-satisfying, good life here and now. Oh, certainly not because we will be most liked and most popular in society. Church, we love Him. Oh, we love Him because His Spirit has opened our heart and hearts to Him who completely was selfless and showed us what love is. Giving up of ourselves for the will of His Father and for the will of those who the Father gave Him. He demonstrated in our text today is what the Greek Greek knows as agape love. This is what Paul wants us to get down in verses 1 and 2 and walk in. Giving up of ourselves. This is love. This is love unchained. This is love unbound. This, dear friends, is what Paul is calling us to follow and to give ourselves unto. This is what we are called as the children of light. Selflessly to love. We are never more like the Master Jesus Christ than the times when we say no to our desires and we yield ourselves to the Heavenly Father. Success in the way, 
Success in the likeness of following in Jesus' footsteps, beloved, is not graded by how much Scripture you can memorize. It is not by how much money you give unto the church. It is not by a position or an office that you have in the church. It is not by how many professions of faith that you have secured in your evangelistic efforts or how many theological concepts that you can recite and debate. While all those things are indeed in good and blessed, you are most successful in Christ when you give up yourself and you yield unto the will of the Father as He's revealed in the Word of God. We have got this false idea in the church. The bigger the church, the more holier the church. The more successful of the church. No, no, no. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you as children of light, walk as children of light. Be obedient. That is is success. Success in likeness of Jesus is fundamentally but very clearly defined as this. Dying to yourself and existing for the will of God and for others. Others. And especially in our context today. Chapter 5. Or you could say verse chapter 4 verse 30 down to 5, 2, and 3. It's the context of the Christian church. A Christian church. And in an even more macro level, a Christian family. And so, let's get into the messy part. Where we find out that for a Christian husband to want to really truly follow the will of God as a dear child and son of light, as a Christian wife who wants to, yes, follow the will of God and be a daughter of Zion, a daughter of light, you are most successful in doing that. When with your tongue and with your body, you sacrifice it unto the will of God and your spouse, not to your own selfful use and selfish desires. How can I be so confident? That this is the main point of why Paul's putting this here before he goes into these exhortations? Well, quite simply, because this was the key concept that identified the entire life and ministry of the inspired apostle who wrote in Galatians 2.20, listen carefully before we even get into verse 3, because unless you get this down, the words that come to verse 3 will be almost impossible for you to apprehend. I am crucified with Christ, he says in Galatians 2.20, nevertheless I live. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Sacrificial, selfless living for the will of Christ is the call for you and I. Now, Going into our second heading, what Paul now begins to do is to teach them that selfless, sacrificial love of giving up your will and your desires unto Christ, and especially unto the others within the family of Christ, it is evidenced not by the things which I'm about to show you. The things that follow in verse three and four, verses three and four, are evidences, are fruits of someone who has not completely given up the idea that their will, their desires, are more important than God's. It controls their life, it dictates their life, and Paul has an unequivocal warning to those individuals. And he begins under this sinful selfishness with this sin that begins to really personify all of the Gentiles that had been converted out of their pagan cultures and traditions, um, something that really had deep tentacles in them and had to do with fornication. The following practices in verses 3 and 4 that Paul forbids them to partake in and to totally abstain from is evidence of individuals who operate and live in existence as though they themselves are God. And the very thought of sacrificial love, 
The very thought of denying themselves is utterly unimaginable. And those who practice such vile, such dirty acts, which Paul is going to cover here, they exist in a self-consumed way, a self-consumed reality that refuses to yield one inch of self-gratification. It refuses to yield one inch of comfort and or pleasure, no matter if they offend God or others. And these persons will suffer eternal consequences if they die in such an unrepentant, self-centered, selfish way. The first one, verse 3, is fornication. Some of your uh, translations will appropriately and rightly uh, translate it as sexual immorality. And this simply is carrying with it the idea that it is any sexual activity outside of marriage as God has defined marriage. And so I got a news flash for a lot of people who want to accept other definitions of marriage in the church. That's fornication. It's fornication. Got a news flash for those who think they're more clever in the modern church who want to say, well, I have a desire for fornication and a certain type of marriage that's not defined by God's word. So out of one side of my mouth, I agree with that orthodoxy. But on the other side, I want everyone to accept my desires as being just who I am and normal and nothing I need to repent of. Guess what? I'm sorry to tell you, but that's fornication too. Jesus, do I really need to go there? Clears that up. The intents of the thought, the intents of the heart. I mean, please, really. I can't even believe they're trying to say that kind of thing. Verse number three. I believe that this is at the top of the list by no mere coincidence. Because the issue of sexual perverseness was very apparent and prevalent among the Gentile nation and the peoples in their society. And it was, for the large part, culturally accepted along with idol worshiping. And so, get this idea. Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus, largely comprised of Gentiles who come, oh church, listen to the parallels, a cultural context that largely promoted, advocated, and publicly accepted perversions of sexuality. They've been converted, or at least they profess they've been converted. And they've come into the church. And Paul wants to admonish them And tell them, while we don't have any explicit evidence in front of us that this was going on, we do in in the Corinthian church. They were Christians who were well-equipped with many gifts. They were somehow or another fallen in the mistaken notion, he's going to deal with it in a moment, that they could continue in such perversions that their culture had so really promoted and, and, and they lived in and still walk with Christ and be okay and still get their ticket into heaven. And Paul had to speak very clearly to them like he's doing today. This troubling cultural practice of sexual immorality, of perversions, of all sorts and all types, was of a great concern to the early church for many who formerly had been part of these Gentile societies and indulged in these sort of sinful, illicit practices And they had come to profess Christianity. There's new belief. They spoke and they confronted these issues very often. I'm just going to rattle some scriptures here. 1 Corinthians 5.1, 1 Corinthians 6.13, 1 Corinthians 18.1, 2 Corinthians 12.21, Romans 1.29, and I'm sure by inference I could find many more that deal with this issue of continuing in sexual perversion as being absolutely unacceptable for someone who's going to inherit the kingdom of God. They dealt with it. It was a problem. Now, going back to our Sunday school class, the grandchildren of postmodernism who are seeking truth, um, their uh, church not looking for a bunch of fluffy, plastic, fake religion. Right? They, they have real problems. They have real sins. They've attached and and have got wrapped up in some really bad habits, addictive habits. And we, as the church, need to help these individuals the way the early church helped the individuals that were coming out of the Gentile pagan societies into the church. We don't act like they don't exist. We don't act like that these 
are things that can't ever happen amongst us. While Paul does say uh, the normal lifestyle, I'm getting ahead of myself here, should be the conduct in the church as to where they're never even mentioned. Meaning it's never an idea or a culture would develop to where we can kind of wink, wink, understand that's the way things are. Right? But I find in these portions of Scripture, along with those ones I decided, a reality check that I think is a wonder, wonderful ministry to any cultural context that's being dominated by sexual perversion. Is that we can sit down with the Word of God, we can first recognize the problem, we can recognize where we were wrong, how to constructively fix the problem, and move forward as God's people. The postmodernists, the media modernists, whatever you want to call them, beloved, they don't have that. And that's why you see them becoming more and more deranged. That is what it is. Reprobated. Scary stuff. We have a solution here. Now, let's move on. This is why the early church dealt with this, because it was a reality. There were people coming into the church with these issues. Just to um, kind of amplify this a little bit, allow me to expound just one example of what we see the early church doing in recognizing things that are really harmful to the church. Back in Acts 15, because of my time, I'm not going to go there. I had in my notes to go there. But in Acts 15, many of you know the context in the early church. Um, There were some men, some brethren, that came from the church of Jerusalem, and they went over to Antioch, and they visited Antioch. And they began to teach some of the Gentiles over in Antioch that in order to be fully converted, or in order to really be fully justified and forgiven by God, Yes, you do got to have faith in Jesus and you got to believe in his work, but you also have to uh, follow certain ceremonial laws such as circumcision. And um, they were called Judaizers. And so this was causing a bunch of division. It was causing a bunch of confusion in the church. And the church in the Antioch had Paul and Barnabas with them and began to talk to Paul and Barnabas with them. And Paul and Barnabas exchanged words with these uh, brethren from Jerusalem and had a disagreement. And the church in Antioch said, why don't you go to Jerusalem and speak with James, speak with Peter, speak with the church there. And we just want to know, what is the the truth? What What is Christ's truth in this matter? Okay? So they go there, and they debate this issue about whether or not the Gentiles have to be circumcised. They debate this, you know, this very important doctrinal issue. And when they get done, Peter being the one, if you remember, largely carrying that debate on on the correct understanding of uh, faith alone, by Christ alone, through faith alone, they articulated this. Now, in connection with what we're talking about today, they send this word back to these Gentiles, right, who come out of these societies. Connected with this very important doctrine of truth, listen to what they said in Acts 15.20. We write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Now, now what they're doing there is they're saying, listen, y'all don't have to be circumcised, all right? But we are very keen and very aware that part of your former cultural identity, part of your formal cultural context in which you were raised in, you practiced, you accepted, you never had a second thought about, involved idol worshiping and sexual immorality. It was approved of. These things cannot be brought into Christ's church. So you see how heightened this issue is. You see how serious this issue is. And I believe this is why it's at the top of the list. It had to be renunciated. It had to be brought forward and perpetually reminded, unequivocally in clear terms. We can never be in a state of continual allowing fornication to exist amongst ourselves. He goes on to say, look at verse 3, not only any form of uh, uncleanness or sexual Immorality, but he connects it, he expands it even more with all uncleanness, or in the text says, or covetousness. Modern translations say all impurity or 
covetousness. This word, this Greek word uncleanness is translated in Romans 6.19. And when we see how it's used there in the context here, we see kind of how he's expanding the dimension for those who want to say, well, I've never really physically been with another person outside of my marriage. Listen to what Paul says here in Romans 6.19 where the word uncleanness is translated same Greek word. He says, After I speak the manner of men because of my infirmities of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness, there's that word, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. This word here, uncleanness, is capturing what we see it connected with, or covetousness, these Illicit desires for things that are forbidden by God. Physical acts and also sinful desires. Coveting things of a sinful, lustful nature. Let it not be named among you as becometh saints. I'm not going to apply that. We already talked about that. How in the church there seems to be an attempt to want to minimize the vileness of of how the early church and God sees these things. He moves on to verse 4 to some other sins of the tongue. These things in verses 3 and 4, like I said before we went into them, are truly roots and fruits of selfishness. Not yielding over to God. Not yielding over to others. I said it before, but I'll say it again in the context of a marriage. What a man and what a woman does with his body and what he does with his tongue, it is not his own. It is God's. And it's his spouse. It's God and her spouse. A word to single people. This text demands unequivocally purity in your thought life and in your physical conduct with other people. You can't get away from it. While the world is screaming at you, even as Christians, it's okay, do this, think this, so forth and so on. No. The text before you today says, let it not be named once among you. Young people, don't jest, mock and jolly. It definitely does not um, pay any credibility to your uh, maturity and understanding at things that have a sexual or kind of a crude, you know, um, bent toward them. Whether you're in a group of friends, we call it locker room talk, or there's even a, a film, perhaps, that you would be watching. Sense of the tongue, let's move on here in verse number four. He forbids it to be used for filthiness, foolish talking, nor jesting, which are, the old authorized version says, convenient. Um, I think a better translation is out of place. This is guarding our tongue. There, there are three here inappropriate sins of the tongue, which, which include any speech that is, you could say, obscene, um, it's degrading, it's foolish or dirty, or it's suggesting immorality, right? We have to guard ourselves, particularly us fathers out in the workplace. I know I do in the construction place. Guys always trying to come at me with some sort of suggestive joke, some sort of subjective talk by a young lady who walks by or whatever. I don't participate in that. That's filthy in God's eyes. Such use of the tongue is destructive and corrosive on the testimony of ourselves and also the desire of us of wanting to continue to walk in a path of purity. Now, very early on in my Christian life, working in construction, I had the false notion that, you know, we all have our story. I had the false notion that at church, I could come to church and talk like a Christian. And then on the job site, I could kind of participate a little bit. Not, I'd never use God's name in vain, but I'd participate a little bit on the job site talk. I'd kind of go along a little bit with the stuff, you know? And the Holy Spirit began to prick me and to say and convince me, how are you going to be a witness and a testimony to these guys when you kind of lightly and, and kind of jestfully go along with their little crude jokes? You know? 
I didn't do an exegete or a big study of this text. That was the Holy Spirit organically convicted me of how am I going to at lunchtime talk about Jesus if I just participated in a locker room joke with you and kind of laughed at it and didn't openly rebuke you or, you know what I mean? I participated in it. It is corrosive. It, it, it begins to numb us down. It begins to, you could say like the corrosion on a battery, make us ineffective. Well, now we come to a very clear portion of the Scripture in verse number 5. Verse number 5, Paul says, No, what? Whoremonger, unclean person, or covetous man. Notice he links it with idolatry because they're worshiping themselves. They're placing their desires, their will before God. There on the throne hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God. The word whoremonger here carries with the idea of someone who uses their body that God has given them in unlawful perversions. Here is the wise and the faithful words, beloved, of an apostle. Here in verse number 5, we have the faithful words of someone who demonstrated a great love for Christ and souls as an evangelist. And here we have faithful words, not coddling words, from a pastor teacher who was experienced and who was inspired. Now, we would readily admit, along with Paul, that Paul was not God. Meaning, Paul... He did not possess the omniscience of God. He did not have all knowing about, as we learned in Sunday school hats, uh, Sunday school hats, (laughs) Sunday school class, about the motives and the intentions and the thoughts of man. We would admit Paul didn't have that, and he would admit that as well. Whenever there was those who were professing faith, that contradicted their faith in the manner of the acceptance of these things, Paul knew that he had to present the reality to them that there are only two spiritual possibilities going on here. So he lays this text down because he admits he's not God, knowing everyone's hearts, but he lays the text down for anyone who is willfully continually giving themselves over to these things above the will of God and others, he said there's only two possibilities. The first possibility is that those professing faith and failing in these areas are simply still very immature. And they are sadly wayward children in the family of God. And who can and indeed will be restored through the gracious providence of God by the Spirit's help but not without the proper administration of God's Word. Without sitting down with that individual. They want to be changed. They want the salvation of life. They want constructive, progressive counseling to help them mortify and kill this thing that God detests, that they know they are squishing, if it's possible, allow me this language, uh, God's will, pushing it out of the picture and placing their will in the forefront. Paul says it's either that time will tell. Or the second possibility is it's those professing faith who in fact are really still unconverted. They are holding a certain form of godliness in Christianity but denying its power. They are professing a verbal faith in Christ yet denying Him with their lives. 2 Timothy 3.5, Titus 1.16 And again, time will tell. But those are, the, those are only two possibilities. On one hand, Paul understood well that a saint's sinful flesh would never be fully eradicated until his final glorification in heaven, Galatians 5.17, and that there will always be, even in the most devout life, a constant battle against sin and a battle against moral failure and a need for ongoing repentance and confession. However, on the other hand, Paul also taught elsewhere that there is a great difference between a weak, sincere believer who is struggling against sin 
and makes from our vantage point only minimal progress in their sanctification, there's a world of difference between that weak saint and a false convert who professes with his lips Christ, yet lives in a near constant state of worldliness, which includes these sins, with little offense to his conscience, no brokenness over the sins, can commit it, doesn't think twice, doesn't feel any remorse or any grief about the reproach that he is bringing upon the cross of Christ. Paul's saying it's either one of those two things. It has to be one of those two things. And if you're in that second category, please know, please understand, you will be barred from heaven despite what you say with your lips. It is because of these distinguishable realities between the weak saint who truly is struggling with sin and the false convert who professes his life but revels in his sin, is why this experienced apostle had already confronted some of these exact same issues in another church. And that's why he gives this authoritative declaration about those who make no mistake about it will be barred from entering into heaven. He told us the people in in the church of Corinth that we noted earlier in the message. Listen, I cannot judge your heart. But be clear, if you continue to live and to practice and to think this way, you will not be entered into heaven. Now what's that supposed to do? It's supposed to lay the authoritative, loving truth right down before that person. And time will tell whether they will grapple, wrestle, continue to fight through that sin until they have victory over it. Or whether they say, you know what? I can't change. I don't want to change. I'm never going to change. So maybe Christianity just is not true and they walk away. Now for our concluding thoughts, which come conveniently to us in verses 6 and 7. Don't be deceived, beloved. There is a real danger of false assurance. There is a real danger. Paul says, let no man deceive you with vain words. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not therefore partakers with them. Church, do I believe to decades of sloppy and careless handling of the gospel and an overgeneralizing of its essential truths and reducing its contents to the lowest common denominator in order to draw in and include the largest number of professions of faith in a local gathering, the gospel has unfortunately become a shallow creed consisting of only a few professions of spiritual truths without any call to die to oneself. And because of such weakness, because of such pragmatism in the pulpit ministries of the gospel, and because of fear, the professing church by and large is filled with individuals who have never been confronted with the true gospel of Christ to die unto their self continually. They've never heard the gospel warnings. They have very little understanding of genuine biblical assurance. And what's even more sad is that many ministers, I don't know their hearts, I don't know if they're well-intended or not, they explain away an individual's lack of sanctification, explain away their, their worldliness in hopes that they don't rock the boat when what you need to do is do what Paul does and lay the truth down and then say, let's meet at my house later this week if you want to talk. <laughs> Not coddle. Not, not, not to say, oh, I know you know you're the consistent life of this and you just have no remorse about it. We've talked to you three or four times. You're just, oh, and I can't even hardly stand to say this term. I guess we have to accept amongst our gathering that this person's just a quote-unquote carnal Christian. The gospel of Christ doesn't allow for carnal Christians, brothers and sisters. Paul says, listen clearly to what I'm saying here today. Let no man deceive you with vain, empty words. That's what that word vain means. Hollow. And isn't that truly those who want to sell that brand of Christianity bring to the table? Empty, 
hollowness. It is. And, and, and for, the, for the person who truly is seeking to grow from any of these activities that are here, which were in the life of some of the Christians, true Christians in the church, they don't need vain, empty words. <laughs> they need the truth in love, and then they need help to apply the Word of God in their lives. And here's something in a closing thought to us all as Christians. Brothers and sisters, that gets real messy. It gets messy. I have not ever jumped in the arena of sacrificial love with individuals who are sincere, weak Christians struggling in these sins and it been a one, two, three visit, five, ten minute conversation, read a chapter, say a prayer, go home. No, 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 no. It is long, bloody, sweaty, involved time. Go back to verse 1 and 2. Selfless love. Selfless love. Oh, guys. May we, as God's saints, recognize these things are off limits for us. If they're in our lives, let's get help through them. Fathers, talk to your sons about these things. Don't let the world disciple them and teach them. Mothers, talk to your daughters about these things. Don't let the world disciple them and teach them. Let's not act like we can't talk about the realities that our boys and our young men start to go through. And for an individual here this morning who finds themselves at a place where you are or your life and the conduct of your life can be identified as, and only you know this, these, the nature of these sins are so secretive. It's what makes them so damning and so hard. You know who you are. If this is a consistent practice in the conduct of your life, and it does not jar you, it does not prick you, it does not grieve you, and you are not, or perhaps you have given up, and I know some brothers that have given up, they've been in a ditch of apathy, I'm not God, I don't know their hearts. If you're in that state, you hear the words of Paul, I'm not someone to give you vain words, you are in a state, a very precarious state and a situation. Let the words say what they say. And let us go to the throne of grace and ask Christ to help us and help one another to rid our lives of these things so they cannot be once named among us. Okay? Let's close with a word of prayer. Holy Father of light and of all purity, We, O God, bring before You our stained hands of sin and iniquity. And we confess to You, O God, that we are ill-deserving sinners who have only been made children, not because of our purity, not because of any righteousness and ongoing righteousness within ourselves. We confess the promises that You have made to us in Thy Son, mentioned today in verse 3, who has given Himself up for us to make us children of light, to give us new, renewed minds and affections. It is Christ's work upon Calvary that justifies us in Christ alone. But, oh God, we hear clearly Your exhortations here in this text today as Your people. These are not fluffy, lighthearted words. They are very clear warnings to any brothers or sisters within the community of the covenant, local covenant church, who feel no remorse, have fallen into a calloused, hardened heart in any of these sins. O oh God of glory and of grace. I pray if there is one of thy sons or daughters in these wilderness of darkness that you would today, Lord, jar their conscience, 
that they would begin to search you, search a faithful brother that will help them wade through your word, which is that surgical instrument that will not let them hide, will not let them rest, will not let them, O oh God, allow this to continue in their lives. We pray, God, your grace for your church and your sons and daughters in your church. And O oh God, I ask you today, if there is a false convert within our pale, Will you please by this effectual, powerful spirit draw them to the cross of Christ? Oh God, give them such a disdain and a hatred of the darkness and the filth that they have allowed into their lives, that they have continued to practice and believe. Break free the shackles of deception. God, give them liberty, I pray. And let them know the full blessings of abiding in the sacrificial love of Jesus. Help us, we pray. Help us, we ask, O Spirit of God, to be the children of light. We cannot do it without Thee. We bless You and we thank You. In Jesus' holy name, Amen.